The Pathetic Fallacy by Gary Butterfield Originally published in issue 2 of Insomnia Press Entitled Happy Birthday Lovecraft I've never been arrested. I say this out loud to no one in particular when I see the cruiser pull up to the curb. It's hot and nervous in my house, and every living thing inside flexes. My body, for starters, wants to fold itself up and put itself away. Shadowfax, my cat, stops his tail, grabbing it with one paw and tucking it under his arm. He's looking at me with his one good eye. My curtains refute the breeze. Knock, knock, knock at the door, and it's terrible and thunderous, and I start a little. I force myself calm. I tell myself, I haven't done anything. Not really. Nervous seemed about right for me. Was it always like this? Yeah. Maybe it started with my dad, or maybe it started with one bad babysitter, or maybe with some pederast brother. I can't remember. And really, who the fuck knows or cares? I remember feeling belittled by teachers, ignored by girls at first and later women, left terribly alone. Insults disguised as jobs, prisons masquerading as apartments, endless voids dressed as girls and boys, an insipid legion of hours. My days leading up to the cave were marked by the twin insults of trivia and parody. There's no point in looking back on the tiny cracks that shattered me. Floods do not remember raindrops. What you remember is when the floodgates open. Listen, when I decided to try to control what had become of my life, I found that I had no control. My hands were slippery on the wheel. My foot couldn't find purchase upon the brake. Things I used to want, like physical intimacy or a decent job, just refused to happen, no matter my will. And when I thought of the steps it would take to make these things a fraction more likely, those steps stretched out endlessly in front of me like some Escher infinite staircase. Myself, at the bottom, I found my body, mind, and soul refused to move. So I buried myself in games, a pathetic fiction. While my meager inheritance evaporated and my bills went unpaid in the service of food, I stared at the ceiling of my small house, lying flat on the bed in which my parents fucked, and something occurred to me. This world doesn't want me. This human world has passed up every opportunity to utilize me, and when I die, the world will be none the poorer for it. So here I was, wasted on the world. This was a boon because it was a problem I could solve. My parents died old and sick and in pain and falling to pieces, like we all will if we aren't murdered by cancer or by a car first, and thus my medicine cabinet was rich with pain pills. I could take them, get addicted and have respite from the pain. Or better yet, Vicodin and Oxycontin could shepherd me to oblivion. Holding a 50-50 mix of both pills in my hand and standing in front of the sink, surveying what had been done to me, I tossed them back and swallowed. The reflection in the mirror swirled down the drain. Instead of nothing, I found myself lying on a cave floor. Like most Americans, what I knew about caves came from movies and books, so I was unprepared for the overwhelming odor of bat shit. It got into my head, cleared my sinuses, and felt like barely tangible fingers massaging my guts. I retched, and no pills were produced. Compelled, I got up and stumbled forward through the slate-gray darkness, hearing what had to have been bats above me and who knows what all around me. There's only one way to go, just like in life, and that was forward. So I did. After a few moments it became darker, and the walls looked like dark puddles rather than stone. So much so that I was afraid to touch them, because I might fall in and drown. It no longer smelled like guano, but became something equally brutal, like sewer. 
like biology class. At the end of the tunnel, I could barely make out the shape of a man in a suit. The walls were definitely glistening now, and in addition to my breathing and heartbeat, I could hear a long, low note. Hello? I said, do, do not, not come, come closer. closer. The man spoke in all languages at once. I picked out the English, I picked out the Latin, I picked out what little Spanish I remembered from high school. My head started pounding. I didn't know it then, but it would never stop. The man, standing straight up, stiff as a board, moved in a peculiar manner, as if his feet were rooted in place and his body was a string running between his feet and head. I couldn't make out his face in the distance, but I could see the dark stains around his white collar and cuffs, and the glistening blackness behind him. Tell me what you want. English, Latin, Spanish. I knew that there was a right answer. Did I want suicide? Oblivion? No. I wanted to be special. I wanted to be powerful. I wanted to be unique. I wanted control. I wanted to impact this world. Not as a great inventor or artist, but the way a hammer impacts a nail. The way it had chosen to impact me. I didn't need to say so. The man nodded. What price are you willing to pay? Again, there was a right answer, and the right answer was anything. And next, he spoke, and again, it was in all languages, but I remember most the phrasing in Latin. Harasne pro hominibus. Translated, do you speak for man? This time, I knew that there was no right answer. This was a choice, and it was the first time in a long time I felt like I was making one. I was powerful. Time moved slowly in that moment. Maybe literally, because when I think back on it, there were things about that cave that seemed to operate differently. Maybe it was dream logic and the associate physics, but I swore at points my hair fell up and my blood flowed backwards. But I thought, fuck it. Yes, I do. I speak for man. The man nodded, and something pushed on the insides of my skull. The details after that are really inconsequential. Merely aftershocks. Returned to my home, I continued to age, and my skin bloated and a toe did slaw off. One patch upon my torso is like a rotten spot on an apple, soft and blackened and spilling foul, sweet-smelling syrup when I touch it. And my gums, they grew sickly and weak. I don't know when the man in the cave will come to collect. When he does, perhaps we will frolic like kittens in the gray chemical slurry that was the soil. Maybe he'll drink the cloudy mess that sometimes stains my pillow when I awaken. I don't care. The man in the cave is the future. The cave itself is the past. I shake off the memory and I open the door. Are you Michael Cavanaugh? The cop is tall and surprisingly young and he has another young cop, a black, behind him looking bored. Cop White wears aviator sunglasses that look like they came from a cop Halloween costume and carries a brown box. Cop Black is just cool and bored, but sweating, his head covered with short hair looking like a glistening delicious peach. I am. Michael, the cop says. I'd like to talk to you a little bit if I could. The cop is soft and polite, and his voice raises half an octave. I hate that in him, but my face stays still. If anything, the corners of my lips tighten a bit. It might even look like a smile. Forget it, man. They must have fucked up at the lab. It clearly ain't him, says Cop Black. Go in the car, then. Cop White dismisses Cop Black. What seems to be the matter, officer? I sway in the doorway and itch all over, but do nothing about it. Cop White nods and shoulders past me, and Cop Black walks back to the patrol car. Delicious peach. Cop White sniffs the air in my house and tries to hide any reaction, but 
I can see the disgust in his eyes. I don't blame him. I am almost unseeable in my current state. My skin is yellow-stained and hangs off my body in bloated bags of subcutaneous sludge. My hair is shaved for convenience, and for convenience I have a full beard, unkempt and uneven. I can't really remember what my mouth and jaw looked like before my teeth fell out, but it's soft there now, limp. My clothing smells sour like sweat and old ejaculate, because when I use a shirt to clean up, I don't always remember. My bare feet showcase nine toes in green and black and brown and pale ochre, the nails twisting and hardening, and if you watch closely, maybe you can even see it happen. My house has not been attended to in some time, and a trail of packaging circles the room. I can't remember the last time I changed out Shadowfax's box. I move some dishes off my couch and make room for Cop White, but we just stand there, and Shadowfax starts rubbing his leg. The cop reaches down to scratch the cat's chin. Mr. Kavanaugh? He begins. He's nervous. I don't know quite how to explain this, but... He pulls an object out of the box. It's a human jaw attached to part of a skull. What's that, officer? He stops petting Shadowfax. This is you. At least that's what the lab guys tell me. Librarian found it in rare books over at the university. Scared the piss out of her. We've been trying to get a hold of you, but you're always out. We talk to your neighbors, and they say you don't ever turn off the lights. They talk about you spending all hours in a shed in the backyard. You mind if I take a look around? I try my best to fit my face into a shape the cop will understand. Officer, this clearly isn't my jaw. Last time I checked, my jaw was still attached to my face. I laugh. It sounds wet. I consider flashing him my gums at this point, just to see if I can get him to react. You haven't answered my question, Mr. Kavanaugh. Can I take a look around out back? I'm fairly certain that you don't want to, officer. I look deep into his mirrored sunglasses, my gummy eyes wet with what might look like compassion as August sweat beads on his forehead. I think I would like to, Michael, just to be safe. Do you have a warrant? Officer? No. He stands up and glances at the shed out my kitchen window. But I can get one. Well, you have an adventure ahead of you, don't you, officer? Cop White is a little shaken. He smells different. I show him out. After the cruiser departs, I wait a beat before drinking half a quart of milk. For the last several years, my stomach has felt like a coffee pot that was left to burn, acidic and angry. Then I kneel at the side of my broken, stained mattress, and I pull out a long box, the kind you keep comics in. It's filled with skulls. That's not entirely accurate. There are some fully formed skulls. Some even have patches of tissue and blood and fat sprouting upon them. If you didn't know better, you'd think it was mold. One even has a little hair growing. Others are half-formed, the top still split open like a blossoming flower. Some are just bits. The thing they all have in common is that they orbit a single corn-yellow tooth. I count them. Eleven. The final eleven. It should take a couple hours to get the warrant, at least. Feeling inspired and slightly compulsive, I walk out to my shed. Inside, standing shoulder to shoulder, is an army of me. Fifteen Michael Cavanaugh's, packed like sardines, naked, slim, coated with paste like what's under a day-old band-aid. They have dumb, sagging expressions on their faces. Each one has a single, corn-yellow tooth in their skull. Sure enough, the third from the left lacks a jawbone, his tongue waving back and forth in the folds of his limp mouth. No matter. On the shelf behind them are books pilfered from libraries. De Vermis Mysteries, The Outdown Shards, The Book of Iban. 
The man in the cave has his plans, but I do too. I laugh and I feel the August heat on my rotting, blackened gums. You've just listened to The Pathetic Fallacy, written and read by Gary Butterfield, originally published in issue two of Insomnia Press, the Happy Birthday Lovecraft issue. If you're interested in more works by Gary Butterfield, please go to www.garybutterfield.net. And Happy Halloween.